The deep connection between this kind of identity politics and uh, a hatred of the arts, a hatred of creation, a hatred of anything new. I mean, it's, it's very deep. It's not a superficial uh, link. It's not that because of identities, uh, we, on the basis of the harm that is being done to us, we are opposing this text or that painting. That's how it looks like from the outside. But the moment you you go into the uh, inspection of the machinery, then you discover that the arts and that creation in general have to go. They have to go from this viewpoint because they will bring new context, they will bring complexity, they will give you objects of thought that could divide themselves. And you could think of yourself thinking of something you were not thinking before. And even that very division within yourself is a danger to the affirmation of uh, our lives being based on a series of identities A equals A, B equals B, C equals C. So there is this deep link against anything that will challenge this very, very limited logic. Welcome to the latest edition of the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dow. My guest this week is author and scholar Laurent Dubois. Laurent is a professor of comparative literature, romance studies, and cognitive science at Cornell University, and the author of many books of philosophy and literary criticism. He's the founder of Humanities Lab, an intellectual forum at Cornell that explores ideas as they intersect between the sciences and the humanities. The September 2020 issue of Harper's Magazine featured an essay of his entitled Nonconforming Against the Erosion of Academic Freedom by Identity Politics. That essay talked about the inherent limitations of viewing the world through the prism of identity and academia's ever-increasing role in encouraging that viewpoint. But in fact, Laurent's work in this area plunges far deeper than standard discussions about identity politics. He's interested in what this sort of worldview and the technology that feeds it is actually physiologically doing to our brains. In this conversation, Laurent talks about how social media has undertaken a sort of collective cognitive reprogramming of ourselves and our world and what we can do to get ourselves out of this mess. Laurent Dubois, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you for having me, Megan. We're going to talk about a number of things in this conversation, most of which only peripherally have to do with issues of identity and how identity is being folded into just about every aspect of cultural and political life. But for the sake of context, I do want to say that I came to know of you through a recent article you wrote in Harper's, and it begins with an anecdote uh, about an initiative at Cornell where you teach to identify students and faculty who are the first generation in their family to go to college. And you write that you were not comfortable with this, uh, to put it mildly. Can you tell us um, about what was going on there and what your objection was? So I'm beginning the article with this uh, campaign that was launched a, a few years ago, not only at Cornell, but nationally in order to promote uh, what we now call first-gen students, students whose parents didn't go to uh, college, so first-generation students. And the idea was that 
professors or members of the staff in the university who would be in that situation of being first gens, of having that identity, could advertise themselves as such, getting, for instance, a free T-shirt or a free pin from the university, with the underlying narrative that uh, first-gen students would be more comfortable to speak to you if you were to identify yourself as one of them. And even though I suddenly recognized for having faced that in a different context in, in France where I was a student, I suddenly recognized the difficulties of being the first uh, in a family to go to college. So I'm not undermining the differences there. I'm not so sure about the uh, self-advertisement of oneself uh, through uh, the category of an identity that has been relatively recently created. That is a way also to avoid speaking about class issues. I'm especially concerned with the discourse that came and that comes with it, uh, such as um, first-gen students would like to be with people who look like them. And I'm not so sure. I don't, I'm not sure I look like uh, a first-gen according to the definition that a dean of students or an administrator would have. And I'm not sure I would like my students, who would be the first ones to graduate from college, to have this idea that they need to look like a certain way in order to thrive and that they should only associate with people who are supposedly like them. You're a professor of comparative literature and cognitive science. Am I missing anything there? Those are your two areas of study. I'm also in what we call here romance studies. So it's mainly French, but not only French. Okay. So I think it's fair to say that those are areas of study that maybe first-generation college student, graduate student might be less likely to go into. We sort of assume that people who are the first in their families to go to college would major in something quote unquote more practical. <laughs> so can you talk about how you came to these fields of study and, and what your trajectory was as a student growing up and coming into secondary education? I would like to say that I never had any interest in anything practical in in my life when I was a teenager. So that was the beginning. I certainly considered working more on the sciences and in the sciences when I was in, in high school and, and I did lots of math and, and physics at that point. But what drew me to the arts and to literature was just the exposure that I could have to such works. And the exposure was not mainly at home, even though we had books at home. That was not the case so much of my mother, whose grandmother was practically illiterate. And so my mother grew up in, in a house where there were 10 or 15 books, but that was not my case. We had books at home, but we were also exposed at, in school to many, many different kinds of books. And I would go to libraries very early on. So I was certainly drawn to uh, cinema, even to TV. I'm speaking of, a, <laughs> of another era of uh, French national broadcasts where you could uh, watch uh, real movies and, and high-quality programs on, on the screen. I'm not too sure it's, it's the case today. But at least I was uh, immersed in, in a world full of uh, artistic practices as just a regular kid. And what was certainly less regular in, in the way I grew up was the attachment 
I had to uh, art forms and to written language. And even though, as I said, I studied the sciences uh, relatively heavily when I was 15 and up to the age of 18, I, I decided to study the humanities in general within the French system that is usually called the elite system, even though it's a very different elite uh, compared with the U.S., since instruction is free, so or almost free. So we are not speaking of an elite uh, system that is uh, based on high uh, tuition fees, such as we, we have in the U.S. So it's a different setting socially. But I decided to go into the humanities to spend my life with literature, arts, and, and philosophy. And then I went back to the sciences through experimental psychology. And that was a very interesting experience to me as well. I want to talk about how you see this in terms of your work as an experimental psychologist and your work in cognitive science, because it's, you know, a lot of people sit around and complain about these new social mores and norms on campuses and the nanny state and all of this, but you've really taken this to a much deeper level. And I know that you're thinking about this along the lines of what it's done to our brains and how our brains are wired now. So talk about that. How are you seeing this what is the root cause here? And, and what does this say about just our brain chemistry? I've been very interested in the ways we think. And that's how I came to cognitive psychology. I had developed ideas about the way we think and the way we talk and how different uses of language could challenge and expand the way we think and the way we feel and the way we live. Literature being a very good example of that. But I moved into the orbit of the brain sciences and, and experimental psychology to study really the uh, underpinnings, the structure of thought in the brain and in the mind uh, more generally. And there is no way, I know that some people still claim that brains work like computers, but there is no way it could be defended seriously today, especially when we speak about higher order uh, competencies. Our brains do not work the way our computers work. Maybe other computers would be closer to the way we, uh, we think and to the way we process information, to the way we, we invent and create. But clearly, there is a gulf between the kind of computerized artificial intelligence that is dominating the discussion and dominating the practice today and the way we can think, not only of ourselves, but in general. And the fact that we subject ourselves constantly to these computerized means of communication today, thinking especially of social media, but also of the uh, interruptions that will be generated by cell phones and constant communication, what we are subjecting ourselves to is reprogramming us to a large extent. Any activity that we do regularly and massively will reprogram the way we think, but also change the, the volume of the gray matter or the white matter in the brain, change the way you make connections within your brain. And so there is no, it's the case, for instance, that had been studied in experimental psychology with meditation, where people doing meditation for a long time would 
begin to have changes in the way they uh, their brain works. If you spend five, seven, ten hours a day within the very structure of social media as it has been designed, there is no way it will not change you. But not only change the content of what you think, but change the way you think. And that's where we have uh, suddenly a new connection between the current resurgence of identity politics that I identity politics 2.0 and the uh, structures of the social media because you have this constant distraction that suddenly reduces your attention span and that has been said more than once and it's an obvious uh, it's an obvious situation but it's also everything that comes with with our lives on computers even multitasking for instance when you do several things at the same time, several tasks at the same time, it has been studied in, in series of experiments, nicely done, where you see that when people do more than two tasks at the same time, their performance is really uh, decreasing in a very dramatic way. But the interesting twist on this is that when you ask people about their own performance, the more they sucked at doing multitasking, the happier they are and the prouder they are of their performance. So you have this kind of delusion of grandeur. You are so happy to be able to discuss, write an email, write a paper at the same time that you just forget that everything you did was very sloppy, but you're very, very proud of what you did. And all of this multitasking rewiring of the brain is really making us lose sight from what we can think, and especially it diminishes completely our ability to locate realms of thoughts that are not accessible to what has been given to us already. When you walk from place to place within your small bubble of communication, looking at your Twitter feed, when you are just surrounded by what you already know and by the people who are supposedly like you, it suddenly creates a very different uh, kinds of conversation, which has nothing to do with dialogue. It's the conversation that has been promoted by social media that is based on repeating the same things to the same people by uh, associating themselves so that they would aggregate. And you are closing yourself to anything that would be unlike what you already experienced. And from there, it's very clear to see that identities, the way they have been redesigned, are suddenly becoming a major tool in, for marketing purposes in digital media, where you, what you do in your company is to um, sell information and data on the people you are putting into the machine. And same thing as what we discussed with individual advising versus advising identities or categories. If you have a relatively poorly written algorithm and software, it's easier in a sense rather than rewriting the software in such a way that it would capture all the differences and the nuances of individuals. It's easier to ask people to conform to ready-made and set identities because that's how you will have more success in setting the, the right pair of boots or the right car. So suddenly you have this gigantic 
capitalistic model that forces people into predetermined identities and that has tremendous interest in rewarding the assertion of identities. And let me ask you, Laurent, how do you see this breakdown in terms of generation and, and age? And I'm, I'm not asking this because I'm going to ask, you know, for the hundredth time on this podcast about generational identity. That's not where I'm getting at. But like in terms of, you know, somebody who's around our age, you know, late, late 40s around there, are we less inclined to fall prey to this than somebody who is 20 now, somebody who is an undergraduate now? Like, is the brain chemistry of a middle-aged person physically, biologically, physiologically different from that of somebody in their teens or early 20s? As we know, the, the bad news is that plasticity in the brain is, is not constant. So you cannot have absolute plasticity in the brain when you're 50, for instance. But uh, when you're in your 20s, you do not have the kind of plasticity in the brain that you experienced when you were uh, less than 10. Mm. So the, the difference is not so much uh, in terms of people in their 50s would be more resistant to change, for instance, or people in their 50s would be wiser mm-hmm. <laughs> compared with uh, younger ones who would either be, if you're optimistic, open to change and, and to the new conditions of life, or if you're pessimistic, just uh, foolish. It's not along those terms that it really works. I'm, there have been endeavors recently uh, promoting the idea that uh, young people in their 20s were more plastic than we thought they would be, in their, that the brain was not ready. I believe this is a line of research that has its interest, but I'm a bit suspicious of that. Mm-hmm. I believe that it's a discipline. You can change yourself and you change yourself constantly, but there is no way someone who would be 65 and who would be constantly immersed within the social media would be immune to the uh, effects I was describing for people who are younger. Right. No, of course not. And there is no way to believe that people in their 20s who grew up in in a cognitive environment that is quite different from the environment of all the previous generations. But there is no way to believe that those those 20-something youngsters would be harmed for life and that they would all think along the same uh, lines. My experience as a professor is that I have lots of students who clearly voice a disagreement with the dominant uh, culture of the day, with the uh, way uh, digital capitalism is being force-fed on them and with the way um, identity politics are being constructed. Those students exist. They are young. Most of them are very connected to the outside world and, and use the internet as well. But certainly they have a different take on the potential addiction to uh, social media, which is another step. It almost sounds like there's an inclination to model your real life experience after your social media experience. Like it, it's, it's not that your social media life is mimicking the social organization of, of reality. It's the other way. I mean, I, I've noticed... On Twitter recently, I was in an exchange with somebody and I was trying to actually ask their opinion. Like we had a slight disagreement about something. It was like 
nothing really that important. But and I just said to her, like, can you I sincerely want to understand something and I'm asking you this. And she kept saying, well, we're just not going to agree with this. Obviously, you know, we're not going to come to any agreement here. There's nothing more to say. And I kept saying, I'm not arguing with you. I actually just want to know what you think. And it's it's almost like they don't have the vocabulary for a discussion where there's any dissent within it. It's like we're either arguing or we're agreeing. We're either disagreeing or we're agreeing and there's no fluidity there. And and I've been always inclined to blame that on just the society. Like, you know, that's how they grew up. They're looking at screens. Everything is is very black and white, but I wonder if there is actual, there's an actual brain chemistry component. Everything that you do is changing to some extent the chemistry or the chemistry in your brain and the connections of your uh, neurons. So it can even alter the volume and the amount of gray and white matter, which are supposedly more organic than connections between neurons. So everything you do, especially at a high rate, high intensity, will change the way you think. That's very basic. And so that includes clearly uh, what you do on social media. On these three ways of looking at it in response to what you just said, the first point is that, I mean, a good part of the students we teach will move into a tech company later on, and later on might mean one year after you, you teach them. So what we teach, including when we teach the psychology of addiction and how the brain is being uh, hijacked by addicting substances, is being recycled within the practice of social media and has been said now here and there by former uh, executives of the uh, tech companies that it's often the case that the way these softwares and platforms are being constructed are uh, copying the uh, what we believe we know about the brain chemistry of people uh, experiencing addiction. So when you are under the impression that you're addicted to uh, digital media, that's certainly the goal. And mm-hmm. that's a goal that is based on the m- most updated information we could have about brain and addiction. So that's the first first point I would like to make. The second one is that we could have digital media that would work very differently. If you take the example of Twitter, but that's the same for others, Twitter is really based on soliloquy. So it's me speaking about me and things like me, and it's not a tool for dialogue. Then what If someone is giving you a soliloquy, what can you do? You can say, I approve it, or you can say, I don't disagree with it. I disapprove it. And you will have your other counter soliloquy. It has nothing to do with dialogue. And dialogue is supposed to be the basis of democratic societies and the basis of teaching. Without dialogue, it's a different different kind of society we are building. But we could certainly, it's not the fault of the computer in that case. It's not the fault of the internet in that case. It's just a design. We could have social media that would foster dialogue where you could precisely disagree and explain why you disagree. But usually those platforms don't work very well. Yeah, well, what are those platforms? I'd like to uh, get on one of those. I've been telling my students, I mean, some of them are very good at ideas of that kind. I've been telling them for two or three years, you should come up with good platforms 
to have dialogues online. And so I'm, I'm not going to invent that. I mean, that's not my area. But I suddenly feel the need for having this kind of, uh, since we, we upload most of our life and with the pandemic, it's even worse. We upload most of our individual and collective life onto the internet. So if this is the reality, either we go the Amish route and we stop using anything that is technological, or if we are within that system, we try to create ideas and new platforms that would better the uh, advancement of, of, of our social group, of our society. And there, creating tools for dialogues is something that should be done. I'm struck by how you make a distinction between disagreeing and disapproving. I've never thought about it that way. It's when somebody is, quote unquote, disagreeing with you on social media, especially a platform like Twitter, what they're really doing is signaling disapproval. Because disagreeing would in, would imply an engagement, right? But disapproval is just like, I'm shutting you down and you're dead to me, effectively. It, it would imply uh, a shared space for dialogue that we could examine why we could agree or disagree. And that's not what is allowed really by the, the platform. So it's easier to shut you down uh, through insults or even to prevent you from seeing the tweets you, you, you uh, wrote before and, and you will write in the future. So when people speak about disagreement, it's really about disapproval. And disapproval has nothing to do with uh, constructing a space where we can have discussions with contrarian opinions and with uh, differences of ideas. The last point I would like to make in response to what you just uh, said before is that we are collectively creating this new digital society that is much more global than anything uh, before. And this is gradually creating a kind of new dimension. And this digital social media uh, reality is more and more independent from what is happening in the world. And so you only have, per you have percolations. I mean, sometimes it percolates. Digital media will suddenly enter the public realm. But it's more like, especially political discussions are being conceived as a response to what is happening on the layer of uh, social media. What is very interesting in this respect is that because that network is, is global, you now see, for instance, the rise of identity politics in many European countries where the entire political tradition would be at odds with the way it is being conceived now. Whereas it's not true that the entire political tradition of the U.S. would be so naturally opposed to identity politics. There is an historical link within the U.S. But in other European countries, you would think that it cannot work, but it actually it works pretty well. Suddenly, identity politics is no longer this thing from the 90s that was a kind of laughing stock for every European citizen <laughs> when they were hearing about the American society. Suddenly, it's something that you can appropriate, so you will give it a kind of personal update. It's, it's like, you know, it's 
It's a face what we call person. Yes. Yeah. And that's what we call personalization in, in a computer when you have the choice between a black or a gray background and, and then suddenly it's personalized because mm. you have an option between <laughs> a decision between two options. Right. And so that's really what is happening there, that you will have a French version of identity politics, a British version of identity politics, a German version. So you will give it some kind of personalization, but it's just this version that is no longer American, but that is just global. And that happens on digital media, which means that you can have one event somewhere suddenly having direct repercussions in a context that is completely different, but that doesn't matter so much. And why does this bother you? How catastrophic is all of this? Because often I think when we talk about this stuff, it's on the level of annoyance. Well, this is annoying and we need to actually get to real substance when we talk about things. But I, I get the sense that you see something much more pernicious here. So I want to kind of drill down into that. What I see is that the emphasis on the kind of political identities that have been fostered and the uh, tendency to have new proliferating identities that will become more and more ridiculous and more and more microscopic is just putting us backwards and anchoring us collectively into what has been done, into a narrative about self-harm, harm you can inflict to people, and the only perspective for any future uh, operation would be to change the logic of domination, but not abolish domination. So politically, this is not going to the, the right direction. Politically, what does it mean to have a society that is no longer practicing dialogue because you cannot have a dialogue, you cannot have uh, differences of opinion because everybody will be reduced to a predetermined identity or sets of identity. So you can no longer have a space for disagreement. You can vote, but you can vote according to your identity. And now Republican, being a Republican or being a Democrat is more and more, as has been argued by others, uh, is more and more a question of ident ready-made identity, more than a question of discussing what the program is. So I believe the moment we are right we're in right now within the US with Trumpism and this kind of uh, fragmented uh, social fabric is a very good example of what we are uh, going to, to go to through the acceleration of uh, identity-based approaches being understood that, in my opinion, the core of Trumpism is identity-based. So that's one thing politically. But then it looks pretty ugly because I don't think that the U.S. makes the envy of the world right now for its uh, society. No, certainly not. But it's still a part of, of the catastrophe that we are preparing. And in a sense, to me, it's a minor part because there is no way you can create, not only invent or not only update the thing that existed, there is no way you can create clearly in the arts, but also in philosophy, but also in the sciences. There's no way you can create if you are putting as the ultimate goal the expression of something you already know and that has been predefined. And that's, in this case, an identity. That's, in this case, the repetition of what has been done already. So in the arts, if we give up on the possibility of transforming ourselves 
of alteration, of transforming others through what we are suggesting. If we are giving up on that, we will have something that will be quite close. The kind of arts or the so-called arts or, or text that uh, artificial intelligence is, going, is promising us as, as a kind of uh, wonderful future these days. I don't know if you saw a recent op-ed in The Guardian that was supposedly written by a computer. No, I did not. Glad to know I'm being, uh, my, my op-ed career is being uh, taken over by computers. Fair enough. Exactly. I mean, the idea was to show that you could replace most op-ed writers with computers. <laughs> These days, for sure. And in The Guardian, I, especially, and, yes. And that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. I thought it's true that given the op-eds I see in The Guardian, artificial intelligence could do the same. Well. Was there the um, the perfunctory to be sure paragraph? So it sort of state there is a template for writing op eds. I, I mean, there's there's definitely a formula, but I I wonder how much time the the AI spent with the the perfunctory. Like to be sure, people from marginalized groups suffer from what I'm about to talk about much more so than everybody else. Like you know, the interesting part of it was that the editors of the Guardian thought that the software should write about uh, its identity. <laughs> so they asked the software to write about artificial intelligence. It said speaking, <laughs> speaking as an artificially intelligent exactly. entity. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what was the topic of the piece, actually? Was, what, it was just its own identity? Don't be scared. Don't be scared. I'm not going to replace you. I'm good. <laughs> oh, okay. So and, and, I, and nobody had to pay me. I wonder what but they paid this columnist. No, no, they didn't pay any, anyone because the, uh, in, <laughs> the inventor of the software is a young undergraduate student, so I'm sure that he got nothing out of it. So it's, uh, it's, it's the best, I mean, it's uh, the best future for The Guardian, I, I guess. Right. <laughs> so if you, so clearly we can say goodbye to the arts if we are not allowing ourselves to be challenged, changed, altered and transformed. The moment you are deciding that the absolute form or the best form of society is this kind of digital construct that we saw happening, you are de facto, uh, with no harm intended, you are de facto uh, shutting down the possibilities of uh, creating something new, and that will affect all areas of life from your sentimental life, where you will not be able to invent something new, to uh, the sciences and the arts. So I may be taking this down to a sort of banal level, but I, I think it's, it's worth pursuing. When you talk about how we might as well say goodbye to the arts if we go too far down this path, are you also talking about the identity politics manifesting in ways like, well, I'm a white person, so I can only write about a white experience in a novel, in a screenplay, whatever it is. Are you talking about just the way, you know, fiction, for instance, by definition is about transcending identities? You are, you, it's an act of imagination. So really, the imaginative act in and of itself flies in the face of these sort of very thinly sliced categories, if that makes any sense. I mean, how would you talk about this 
in very practical terms. If a student came to you and said, well, I, I want to write a novel, but I'm afraid of this or that, or, or do you actually see it? What kinds of self-censorship do you see among either your students or your colleagues or people in the arts that you know because of this kind of stuff? Self-censorship is, is everywhere. That's the whole point of this way of policing thoughts and policing discourse through disapproval. The idea is that we will reach a, a state where we will no longer need any kind of censorship engineered by others, where we will have all of us self-censored. Right. So it's already the case that I have lots of, of colleagues who no longer teach some texts. Uh, it's not very clear, depending on, on the students you will have, depending on the context you will face, it's not very clear that white male could teach uh, Tony Morrison these days. And it already happened that in some places, a white male professor would, would be told that he should refrain by his students, that he should refrain from teaching Tony Morrison. And would they rather nobody teach it? Or would they, do they, is there logic that only an African-American woman could teach it? There's a logic that only an, uh, an African-American woman would teach it. And not a woman of color, specifically an African-American. It will depend. <laughs> it will depend. I mean, you have all kinds of variations in, in these demands. One is understandable to some extent, and it's the idea that uh, you sh could have more uh, diversity in the, uh, among the faculty. Right. But then deciding that an African-American woman would not be in a position to, to teach Shakespeare, for instance, is, is kind of... Racist? Dazzling to me. I mean, it, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't know how this, this could be possible. What does critical thinking mean to students now? When I was a college student, that was the name of the game. We were all there to learn how to think critically. And we thought critically to a fault. Like we were, I felt like we were all contrarians, like, you know, whether we were in the classroom or we were in the dining hall or we were sitting on the, you know, floor in the dormitory getting stoned and listening to music, we were always just sort of poking holes in the conventional wisdom. And that was the, the mode of thought and discourse. But in listening to you now, it occurs to me that critical thinking has been replaced by what we call critical studies. And they're at odds, right? They are. It's true that we, we have a responsibility in, in the sense that critical thinking was sometimes used as a relatively empty category. I mean, you, you, right. I mean lots of people were very happy to, to say that they were critical thinkers, even though they were not thinking and they were not critical. Right, they're in just any criticizing. Way. Yes. Yeah. So yes. Let's say that we may have uh, overused the category. Still, you're right to say uh, that there was a cachet and that there should be a cachet. And we can call that differently. I, I'm, I don't care so much about, about, about that. But certainly, critical studies these days is not about having uh, an open-ended and contradictory dialogue at all. I, I was struck by the reaction of a smart undergraduate student, not an undergraduate student of mine, but at the Q&A section of, after a talk given by a colleague from another university where this colleague was describing the rise of uh, anti-Semitism and what he called Islamophobia in Europe. And so this student um, in his 20s 
raised the hand and, and said something that certainly for him was a way of expressing a critical idea. And he said, so does it mean that the best way now in order to consolidate democracy in Europe would be to implement censorship on everything that is being published? And he was not kidding. <laughs> he says this with a straight face. Straight face. And I understood that to him, it was a way of being critical of the people who uh, are hateful of Jews, for instance. But we see now that critical studies has been turned into an appeal to censorship and to censor and uh, cancel the opinions that you do not share. And you do not share them because they are supposedly bad. And lots of them are bad. That's for sure. The question is, do we draw from that the conclusion that censorship is the way to go uh, or uh, cancellation or cancel culture is the way to go? And what do we achieve through uh, through that? And also it's canceling complexity. I, I noticed that more and more. Of you know, one of the things I wanted to ask that's you. That's the first thing to cancel. That's right. <laughs> and then complexity is at the root of any interesting art or intellectual expression. I mean, that's what's so so frustrating. So I don't know if you're following the controversy surrounding this French Senegalese film uh, called Cuties. It's an art film. It was made by a French Senegalese woman director. It has to do with um, very young girls in Paris in a you know very lower class section of Paris who are uh, copying sexually suggestive dances that they see on places like TikTok and on Instagram. Do, are you familiar with this film? I'm, I'm familiar with, with the uh, discussion uh, uh, surrounding it. I didn't watch okay. the film, uh, but I read some of the things uh, surrounding it, yes. So I actually saw it this weekend. We're recording this on September 14th, and I think that the discussion around this is really peaking this week. I thought it was a really close to masterful in terms of a piece of art and a piece of commentary. I have never seen uh, something that really gets at the way these girls are mimicking sexual performance and gestures without really having any idea what they're doing. It's all about the reward system of social media. You have these, you know, this young girl who's, she's, she's Muslim. You know, there's a lot going on. I don't want to give away too much. Her, her father is taking a second wife. Her mother's suffering terribly around this, but, you know, putting on a brave face. So there's a lot of trauma uh, going on and she gets taken in by the reward system of, of social media. She can post sexually provocative images of herself and suddenly she's got a dopamine hit and she hooks up with this clique of girls who were at first very mean and, you know, they're mean girls and they're bullies to her, but then she joins them. They have this dance troupe and they're rehearsing for this dance competition of very, very, very uh, sexually suggestive sort of choreography that frankly we see all the time. It's nothing we haven't seen in, in unscripted television in the U.S. and elsewhere. Anyway, I'm going on too long, but the fact is that this there has now been a call for Netflix to cancel this film. Uh, nobody has really seen it, but the criticism seems to be, as far as if I'm reading it correctly, is that because social media exists and because scenes from this movie which is a very deeply feminist film in my view, because scenes from it can be taken out of context and showed on social media in a way that is really tantamount to child pornography in some people's eyes. Therefore, the film should not exist. The film cannot exist as a piece of art 
in and of itself. And it's really, it's very meta because the film is about this very concept anyway. It's about social media and now it is itself being canceled by social media. But I don't know. Do you have thoughts about this? Yes, with the caveat that I haven't watched the film. Okay, well, that way, n nobody else has either, it seems like, but yes. But, and, and that's also very typical that people would suddenly oppose the film. Well, they nobody... refuse to see it. Of course, of course. now they can say they morally, they would, they would, on moral grounds, they refuse to see it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very good example from what I can see of a critique of child pornography that is being equated with child pornography. And so that's... Uh, <laughs> right, right. That's what we are facing constantly, that... Even that adjunct professor at, at UCLA who uh, read a letter by Martin Luther King in order to respond yes. to the uh, violence against George Floyd and others by the police was then uh, accused of promoting violence by the, by the police again, against uh, black citizens. And so the critique of child pornography is equated with child pornography in itself. From what I could read, there is very, very little doubt, and you, you watch the movie, but there is very little doubt about the uh, intentions of the, of the director, who is suddenly not promoting child pornography for tiny, no. tiny girls. And uh, I read the other day that the fact that, she, uh, that the movie director conducted auditions meant that she subjected hundreds of uh, children to uh, the suggestive uh, dances that she wanted to see on, on, on screen. So there is this kind of new layer where you, you, know, you have not seen the film. You have seen pictures coming from that. You don't understand the intention at all. And you are now even portraying the movie director, who is a feminist, from what I can see, yes. who is really opposing child pornography. And you are portraying her as someone who would have a kind of hidden pleasure in putting 500 children into almost like a pedophile ring. And that's, that's very, <laughs> I mean, that's also very typical of something I studied in the book that was the reason uh, behind my writing of the, uh, of the essay in, in uh, Harper's that you no longer have a distinction that is made between different levels of representation. So, for instance, if there is in a text a depiction of, of a rape and the rape is being condemned by the author, it is being considered to be a promotion of the rape culture right. in the same way. And that's exactly what we are dealing uh, with here uh, for that movie, where there can be no internal critique and um, that's why you, it seems that you still have within that identity politics uh, 2.0 plan, you still have a kind of interest in, in the word critical, but that means that you are critical of someone else and that there should be, there should be no internal critique, that there should be no internal complexity, that there is no irony, of course, but there is, of course, no denunciation through sophisticated means. And we are just dealing with a very flat world, yes. with a very flat reality there. And also, I was noticing some people on social media, they kept referring to the film as a show. A couple of people said, well, is this show on in different countries? Like, it was almost as if they had never seen a movie, that their experience of the quote-unquote arts and entertainment took the form of television series or 
unscripted series, one of the things I find fascinating about the critique of the audition process was that somehow this is being deemed less acceptable than just filming girls doing this on their own in the context of an unscripted television series. Like there would be something like Dance Moms. I'm not familiar with this show yet, but I'm going to look into it. Apparently it's, you know, it's a, it's a reality show about these sorts of dance troupes of very young girls. There's the whole phenomenon of the child beauty pageant. And somehow the logic now is, well, those things are abhorrent. Uh, but if we're looking at them as a documentary, as if, if we're turning the camera on people who are already doing this, that is not as bad as writing a script, holding auditions, creating characters, and a director directing somebody to do these things. And that, to me, just seems completely backwards. <laughs> the, the characters are, are fully developed characters that also do these dances. And that's why it's not pornography, for starters. But precisely, I mean, that's, that's a very, very uh, striking example of the deep connection between this kind of identity politics and uh, a hatred of the arts, a hatred of creation, a hatred of anything new. I mean, it's, it's very deep. It's not a superficial uh, link. It's not that because of identities, uh, we, on the basis of the harm that is being done to us, we are opposing this text or that painting. That's how it looks like from the outside. But the moment you, you go into the uh, inspection of the machinery, then you discover that the arts and that creation in general have to go. They have to go from this viewpoint because they will bring new context, they will bring complexity, they will give you objects of thought that could divide themselves. And you could think of yourself thinking of something you were not thinking before. And even that very division within yourself is a danger to the affirmation of uh, our lives being based on a series of identities A equals A, B equals B, C equals C. So there is this deep link against anything that will challenge this very, very limited logic. Does this keep you up at night? Does this feel apocalyptic <laughs> to you? It feels apocalyptic, yeah. It does. I mean, I have to say, uh, I have to say that the way you say it, it I, I'm feeling apocalyptic right now, listening to you. But it's nothing. <laughs> it's not surprising. I think these things. I'm not even going to say I think these things all the time. I feel them. There's something very internal about it, and. I always try to check myself. I don't want to be the person who's obsessing about identity politics all the time because it's become a very flattened discussion in a lot of ways. It's just a cliche. It's sort of a reactionary topic. But, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I, I think that there is something much, much larger and more dangerous going on that we haven't yet even begun to get our heads around that has real consequences. I agree. It's good if we are able to be critical of identity politics as it has been deployed over the last 10 years, but it's not a very interesting conversation. It's a conversation we, we must have, but I'm, not, I'm certainly not participating in the conversation because of a tremendous interest of speaking about, about identities. As I said, when I was very young, I decided I would not identify and that was it. And I'm not in the business of writing lots of books and essays against identity politics. But 
the business of identity politics as it is now is to go against anything that I believe life is, is, is worth living in a sense. Creating new uh, ideas, having constructing new ways of feeling, uh, new relations with others, looking into um, different cultures, different sets of minds without being attacked uh, about the possibility of cultural appropriation. All of those experiences that really put us outside of the small experience of the uh, New Jersey undergraduate student uh, living in a dorm, all of these experiences are being shut down if we take that path. So that's why it's apocalyptic, because it's a, it's a completely possible future. I mean, these identity-based uh, view of society could be our future, and it will be a catastrophe for everyone. So how do we talk about this and address this without just falling back on cancel culture and using cliches like that? Like, do we actually just do our art? Do we just go forth and decide that we're not going to be bullied by the mob, even if it means getting our film pulled off of Netflix? Like, wh <laughs> what is an artist to do? What is the intellectual to do? What is the best way of combating this? I mean, the Harper's letter is great. Okay, sign the Harper's letter. What's next? That's partly what you, what you said. I mean, we need to produce, we need to uh, create, we need to do those things. Knowing, unfortunately, that the space for uh, anything non-conforming will not grow wider, at least in, in, for the time being. Suddenly, having other ways of communicating uh, in the digital world would help. I really believe my life is about the arts and about philosophy and the sciences, but I know that there are other ways of living. <laughs> and we, we spend, all of us, now in, in most countries of the world, we spend lots of time online, and so we need to have tools online that would not only be the, the dominant ones we, we have now. Again, it will be for a minority to a large extent, but we certainly need that. And we, we need to do some work on a very individual basis. Each time we are about to say, as a something I believe that, we should try to reconsider the logic of it and try to see if there is another way to express what we think without reattaching ourselves to an idea that we believe other people could have about what we are. If you could roll back the clock, would you say that we never should have had social media to begin with? I mean, what about these people who say, well, it's brought the world together, Twitter enabled the Arab Spring, all the things we hear about it. Do you still see it as a Negative. I'm not opposed to the internet at all, but the internet is not the same thing as social media. Right. I don't think that the social media uh, brought us together in, in any meaningful way. It brought some of us together and creating new subgroups, some of them international, that can now be uh, uh, waging new wars uh, against themselves uh, and among themselves. But that's what I see. I, I don't believe in the promise of liberation through uh, Twitter or Instagram. 
And it's true that when the Arab Spring took place, we had almost every week on campus, nonstop lectures telling us that it was the beginning of democracy in this part of the world, thanks to the use of uh, digital media and social media. I believe we all reconsidered this kind of assumption that using a software invented on, on the West Coast of, uh, of the U.S. would necessarily bring democracy and freedom to uh, other places, especially because of the experience uh, of Trumpism in the U.S., where clearly Twitter was not the main vehicle for uh, liberating us. But if we could go back in time, I would say that engineers and, and marketers uh, should have a better consideration for the social consequences of what they come up with. And instead of building uh, a tool that would only maximize profit through the uh, rigidification of categories and in soliloquies, some people could have invented ways of uh, discussing, at least online. But of course, I'm, I know that this is not how things are, but I still believe we could come up with other ways of exchanging ideas using some kind of digital media, but clearly not the kind of uh, dominant programs we have now. Well, I hope that's true. And um, Laurent Dubois, thank you so much for speaking with me. This has been really interesting and kind of depressing, but I think more interesting than depressing. So, okay, um, so I'm always be, being interested makes me less depressed. So good thing. it's been a fruitful conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. Perfect. Bye-bye. That was my interview with Laurent Dubois, professor of comparative literature, romance studies, and cognitive science at Cornell University, where he's also the founder of Humanities Lab. His article about academia's preoccupation with identity appeared in the September issue of Harper's Magazine. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast which you can get on all the usual podcast places, as well as theunspeakablepodcast.com. Please consider supporting the podcast on Patreon, where subscribers can get benefits like bonus content, early access to the show, and video live stream discussions featuring some of our guests. You can join at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. In the meantime, thanks for listening. I'll announce the next guest very soon on the website and all the usual social media spaces, except not on Instagram since I can't quite bring myself to join it yet, but I'm working on it. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now for amazing savings. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based in 
inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.